0: Hello, my name is Anthony Day from Cyber Associates, and this track is called Carbon Reduction for Business, How and Why. It's a summary of the presentation that I made in the first week of August to the York Business Forum on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce. So, Carbon Reduction for Business, How and Why. Let's start off with something else. Let's start off with what. Well, first of all, it's CO2, carbon dioxide. It's the gas, it's not the element carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases things like methane and a few nitrous compounds and things like that. It's all linked in with energy because the vast amount of greenhouse gases are released through combustion, through the combustion of fossil fuels, through the combustion of organic materials, as well as natural organic decay. So it comes from energy It also comes from processes, agricultural processes, industrial processes. As things are broken down or processed, they emit methane, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Carbon reduction then, why? Why should we? Why should we do anything about it? First of all, because it's government policy. Now, we can argue about climate change, we can argue about global warming, but in the short term, if the government brings in regulations based on their belief of what's going on then we've got to conform. Government policy involves the EU ETS which is the EU's emissions trading scheme and that means that very large users of energy like power stations and steelworks and cement works and major industries like that have to buy carbon credits to offset their emissions. This year 2010 The government has introduced the CRC, the Carbon Reduction Commitment Energy Efficiency Scheme. And that means that second-rank organisations have till the end of September 2010 to register. And after that, they will be in a carbon trading scheme. By middle-rank, it means that uh, anybody who is spending more than half a million pounds group-wide on electricity is likely to come into the net. Efficiency. Well, that's another reason for carbon reduction because carbon dioxide, as I've said, carbon footprint is linked to energy. If you can reduce your energy, if you can use it more efficiently, then you will reduce your carbon footprint and you'll save money. And that must be a good business reason. Sustainability. Sustainability is more and more of a buzzword. The popular definition of sustainability is meeting one's own needs without prejudicing the opportunities of future generations. If you look at it at a purely pragmatic level it's staying in business and staying in profit. And it's good PR. Going green, having a low carbon footprint, lowering your carbon emissions is good PR. Because organisations want to be seen to be green. Because consumers want the organisations with which they deal to be green. And I think it's because most consumers have got a guilty conscience. They drive around in 4x4s, they fly off to the Caribbean, and they feel that as long as they shop at Marks & Spencer's, which has got Plan A, or they deal with other organisations which have got green credentials, then they're doing their bit for the environment. But it goes further than that, as we'll see. Last week, the last week in July, Chris Hoon, who is the Secretary of State for Energy, presented his first annual Energy Statement to Parliament. You can find the details of it on the Department of Energy and Climate Change website, and that's decc.gov.uk. He set out his plans to reduce the nation's carbon footprint by 80%, that's 80% by 2050, by 35% by 2020, and that's only 10 years off, and to make sure that the lights don't go out in the meantime. Why did he mention that? Well, there has been a lot of reports and suggestions and discussion that by 2015 we could be facing brownouts, blackouts, loss of power. And this is because the UK's generation and distribution infrastructure is not being renewed fast enough to meet the demand that we'll have in 2015. The Department of Energy and Climate Change has created a model on which the plans by the uh, Secretary of State are based. That model is available for anybody to inspect and in fact to play with. You can make up your own assumptions about demand, supply and carbon footprint and you can look at the consequences of your decision. You can find that model, there's a link from the Department of Energy and Climate Change website dewc.gov.uk. It would be useful if you could actually go to that website while you're listening to the next part of this podcast but uh, if you can't do that I'll try and explain. There are four broad scenarios on the model but you can actually change a number of factors and make up your own scenarios. But the first scenario is business as usual. and When you go to the website you will find that the screen is divided broadly into three columns. The first column is UK demand for energy, the middle one is UK supply of private energy and the right hand one is the net UK greenhouse gas emissions. On the left hand side there's a big block of colour, it's layers of colour. It's a graph which demonstrates how demand will change between 2010 and 2050. And as far as total demand is concerned, it's not showing a particularly big growth. It is showing some growth. And it's divided into layers. The thickest layer at the bottom, which represents the maximum demand, or the largest demand for energy, is transport. Above that is industry, above that, a band which is nearly as thick as as transport, is heating and cooling, both in the domestic and the commercial environment. And the top there is a thin band which is lighting and appliances. So that's where the energy in the economy goes and that's how it's going to figure if we do business as usual. Moving to the middle, we've got a similar sort of chart, which shows where all this energy is coming from. At the bottom, and increasing, is natural gas. Above that is oil and petroleum products. Then we've got a little area for coal, and it's a very small area, and it fades out almost completely by 2020. There's an even smaller area above that for nuclear. That also disappears by about 2020. And then under that, there's a thin area which includes agricultural waste, biomass and wind. The interesting thing is that in that scenario, business as usual, by the time we get to 2050, indeed even from 2020 onwards, the proportion of energy which comes from renewables is very, very small. And moving across the right-hand column, the carbon footprint of the nation has hardly changed at all. So business as usual is not an option if we are actually going to achieve our carbon reduction commitments, our carbon reduction targets by 2050. Under each of these graphical blobs are numbers of criteria which can be changed in order to change the final result. They include on the demand side things like heating, lighting, insulation, industrial processes, transport patterns, which means whether you go in a private car or on public transport. Transport power, which means whether it's electric, fuel cell or still petrol or diesel. Demand factors in terms of freight, aviation, shipping and fuel choices for heating the home and for cooking. On the supply side, well, there's nuclear, there's coal and carbon capture and storage, there's oil and there's gas. And then there's the new technologies, solar, wind, tidal, waste, hydro, marine Geothermal, Biomass, Algae, and Inputs. As we've seen, business as usual was, is not going to de- deliver anything like the results that we want. This model has four scenarios. If you set everything to level 2, which the government calls achievable, then the result is slightly different. First of all, if we look at demand, we can see that it, it stays steady rather than growing. It also means that um, the, the share between transport, industry, heating and lighting remains about the same. But there is quite a dramatic change on the supply side. The most important difference is that natural gas has almost disappeared as a fuel by 2050. Oil stays about the same, although it declines a little bit, but coal expands rapidly so that it contributes more than both natural gas and oil combined to the total energy in the economy. Above that, as well, is a substantial amount of nuclear power. And then we have the renewables and the biomass and all uh, and similar. We can then see on the right hand side that the carbon footprint has started to decline quite dramatically. But even so, what they call achievable, the Level 2 scenario, is a long way from the objectives. Level 3 is called hard but deliverable, and this will actually give us your 80% reduction by 2050, 35% by 2020. But we can see that not only has demand declined but um, it's declined equally across the, the 40 years, from 2010 to 2050. Each category of use has been squeezed. But we also see a dramatic change on the supply side. Natural gas has virtually disappeared, oil has declined, coal is in there with a substantial presence, but nuclear is substantially bigger than all of those combined. And above that then we start seeing things like thermal sorry, uh, geothermal, solar, and some really new versions of renewables. On the right-hand side, the greenhouse gas emissions are dramatically falling. This has achieved the 80% by 2050. But as they say, it's hard but deliverable. And as they say, it is a discussion document. And you'll find on the DEC website the invitation to provide your comments and suggestions and contribute to the consultation process. Just for the sake of completion, there is a fourth scenario which they call heroic without breaking the laws of physics. And it means we'll have to do an awful lot of things. Energy demand will decline. Energy supply will be almost totally nuclear. Well, at least well over half of energy will come from nuclear followed by coal renewables and a bit of oil. We'll be way ahead with our carbon footprint reduction as well. But let's go back to the hard but deliverable which will actually get us to the 80% which we're aiming for. The sort of things that we're going to have to do at home. These are all choices and there are many factors which can be flexed but for example home heating will be for a maximum of 17 degrees centigrade. Your house will be heated by electricity and if it's not electricity the most common form of heating will be waste heat from power stations. Now just down the road from us in York we've got Drax power station, the biggest in Europe. It's a coal-fired power station which supplies seven percent of the United Kingdom's electricity, enough to run London. It is the most efficient coal-fired power station in the country. It's 40% efficient. Looking at it the other way, that means that 60% of the energy which goes into the furnaces of Drax Power Station, 60% of that energy goes up those cooling towers. There's enough energy going up those cooling towers to run London one and a half times. So if we could actually divert that heat we could heat an awful lot of homes. By 2050, 80% of cars will be electric or fuel cell if we're going to meet the hard but deliverable targets. More domestic freight will be going by rail and water. On the supply side, there'll be 33 gigawatt nuclear stations. Hang on. 33 gigawatt nuclear stations. All these things are very controversial. But it comes back to the the question. If you're going to achieve this reduction, how are you going to do it? The model shows all sorts of choices. But hard but deliverable suggests 33 gigawatt nuclear stations. That's quite a substantial station. It suggests 13,000 onshore wind turbines, it suggests 17,000 offshore wind turbines and 450,000 domestic micro wind turbines, as well as supplies from solar, tidal, hydro, geothermal and all the rest. There will be all sorts of debates and arguments about this, but if we look at things like wind turbines. And nuclear power stations, we've got to look at the limiting factors. First of all, if you look at nuclear power stations, one of the constraining factors as far as their construction is concerned is probably going to be the available, the availability of the suitably skilled engineers. Because in this country, because we've run down our nuclear industry, we're faced with a situation where our nuclear engineers are either retired or French. They have a lot of nuclear engineers in France because they have a big nuclear industry. But they will certainly be concerned with their own requirements. And then if you look at wind turbines and electric cars and solar panels, they rely on rare earth metals. At the moment, rare earth metals, 95%, are available from China. And China is not keen to export them. It's delighted to let people come in and build factories to use this material, but it's been calculated that they will have to increase their production four times just to meet their own domestic requirements. So there could be a constraining factor there. Quite apart from planning issues, quite apart from uh, public disquiet, it's going to be a very challenging time. Now last week It was not only Chris Hoon who published his plans and thoughts, but it was the City of York. They published a Climate Change Action Plan for York and a Climate Change Framework for York. And amongst other things, they aim to reduce the carbon footprint of the city, not by 35% in 2020, but by 40%. The document is available from the York City Council website. You'll find a link on the front page, Taking Care of Climate Change. And you can read these two documents. And there's a third document, which is a summary of the two. This is also a consultation process. In the action plan, they talk about mitigation, which means dealing with things. Mitigation. Taking action to try and reduce the problems, to reduce the carbon footprint, to stop things getting worse. Adaptation which means taking measures to deal with things that we cannot now change. The best example, of course, is flood prevention. And they have ten key initiatives, and the big heading is sustainable. Sustainable homes, buildings, energy, waste, transport, economy, lifestyles and land use. The other two relate to the, um, an overall sustainable city through the Without Walls partnership, which is driving this initiative. Their consultation deadline is the 30th of September. That's the City of York. Your local council is doubtless doing exactly the same sort of thing. And the way that we impose or we introduce our climate change action plans depends on the consultation, depends on the opinions of people like you and me. Well, that has set the scene. Now let's get to the stage of how do we reduce our carbon footprint. First of all, the most important thing must be to set a baseline, walk around your building, around your premises, around your home and identify all energy using processes, all fuels and energy sources, process emissions of greenhouse gases if you've got an industrial operation and on the basis of that you'll be able to calculate your carbon footprint. Your carbon footprint can be calculated by looking at your usage of the various different fuels and converting it using a conversion factor which you can find on the DEFRA or on the DEC website. So that gives you a base. That gives you a starting point. The popular cliche or the popular phrase is low-hanging fruit. What can you do that's really easy? in terms of low hanging fruit. Many of you will have done most of these things already. Well there's lighting, there's water, heating, transport, IT and office equipment and traffic lights. Traffic lights? Well I'll explain. First of all lighting. Low energy lighting. We know about these little compact fluorescent lamps, but increasingly LEDs, mains powered LEDs are becoming available and they give a, a nice constant white light the advantage of these is not just that their consumption is much lower than that of a traditional tungsten bulb, but because they've got a much longer life, certainly in a commercial environment, you're saving money because every time a bulb goes, you have to pay somebody to go and replace it. The longer between replacement, the less you have to spend on somebody to actually do this maintenance replacement work. So, with lighting, you can change the bulbs. You can also put in proximity detectors so when somebody walks into an area which is not frequently used then the lights come on automatically. You see this very commonly in, in, in toilets and storerooms and places like that. I went to a hotel recently where they would got this all installed. The sad thing was that the switches switch the light on even on a brilliant sunny day. So you need some sort of detector to stop that as well. Then there's water. Don't waste water. Why not? Because water has a carbon footprint. Water. Uh, a cubic metre of water uses about um, a kilowatt hour of electricity, one unit of electricity. Why? Because it has to be pumped, it has to be filtered, it has to be purified, and then it has to be pumped to your home. And then, of course, it has to be taken away as sewage and pumped again and filtered and processed and pumped out into the sea or wherever it goes when it's clean. Heating is self-evident. Is your building management system operating properly? Have you got comfortable temperature either in the winter or in the summer throughout your building because if you haven't you'll find these fan heaters tucked under people's desks and if they start blowing out hot air that's going to upset the thermostats in the building and either switch on the central heating when it shouldn't or switch it off when it shouldn't and the same applies to fans which you find in the summer if the building is heating and ventilation equipment is not properly set up, then people will bring these things in and it will cause chaos, quite apart from the fact that these units use an awful lot of power. Transport. Well, is your journey really necessary? Can you do things by web conferencing or telephone conferencing? Can you go by public transport instead of in a private car? Can you go by train instead of flying? Of course, there are commercial realities here. There are commercial... uh, issues to be concerned because it may be more expensive to go by uh, it may be more expensive to go by train and it may take more time so all these things have got to be considered it and office equipment well one of the big wasters as far as energy is concerned is data centers data centers can use a vast amount of energy and you may find that the climate control system in the data center is set rather for the employees than for the equipment. You also find sometimes that you've got the heaters working in competition with the chillers and both of you, both of them costing you money. If the temperature, if the desired temperature is the same as or more than the temperature outside, why not use the air from outside rather than chilling or heating the air um, and using energy to do so. What's this about traffic lights? Well, traffic lights. It's not traffic lights at all. It's it's coloured stickers. Red, green and amber. You can go around your premises and if you find something that's switched on and it's wasting energy and it can be switched off without causing any problems at all, you put a sticker on it. If you find something which is running and you're not sure whether it should be switched off but you'll know if you go and ask somebody, then put an amber sticker on it. And if you find something which is running which mustn't be turned off because, well, for whatever reason, then you put a red sticker on it. So people can go around and if they see something with a green sticker running, they just turn it off. If it's got an amber sticker, They go and ask somebody and say, do we need that, and they can turn it off. And people have made dramatic savings of energy simply by putting these stickers in place and telling people what they mean. Stage two. Well, first of all, let's look at your supplies. Look at your suppliers. Find out whether they are taking a responsible attitude to the environment, to sustainability and to low carbon footprint. Why bother? Well, because we spoke about the people with a high profile, the supermarkets, the banks, all the people who are customer-facing, consumer-facing, they have to be green because their competitors are green. And of course, unless their suppliers are green, people might criticise them. And if the supplier is actually violating good environmental practice, it's the major organisation which is going to be suffering. Then there's investment. You may have uh, an item of plant or equipment which is very inefficient, but it's got years of useful life. In certain circumstances, the carbon trust will give you a soft loan, so you can replace that item of equipment with something which is far more efficient and will probably use less energy and will have a lower carbon footprint. Reformulation or redesign. That's another way of reducing your carbon footprint. Take an example, the washing powder manufacturers did an analysis of the product life cycle of their detergents and they came to the conclusion that the biggest carbon footprint, the the major use of energy, actually occurred in the home when the user put the product in the washing machine and therefore they developed low temperature detergents. Now, whether they did this because they wanted to protect the environment or whether because they wanted to get a competitive advantage, it doesn't really matter. But it was unassailable in terms of being environmentally friendly. It allowed the consumer to save money because they didn't need the energy for a hot wash cycle. And it it reduced the carbon footprint of the use of the product. So all the competitors had to follow, follow suit. You may be able to redesign a process and change some of the ingredients so that you do not create carbon emissions or waste streams and therefore you save the cost of carbon allowances or the cost of processing waste so it saves money at the same time as being environmentally responsible maintenance do you leave things until they break down before you repair them or do you maintain things which means they may run more efficiently with a lower carbon footprint, it's a cost-benefit analysis. The cost of the maintenance against the cost of running the, uh, the unit. And then there's the issue of standards. When I presented this to the York Business Forum, one of the participants said that he was being asked, particularly by the local authority, for evidence that his organisation was environmentally responsible. This was a condition of tender. There were pages of questionnaires in the tender to prove that his organisation was green. So increasingly, people are being asked, have you got ISO 14001, an environmental management standard to the level required by ISO 14001? Have you got BS 16001? the Energy Management Standard or have you got BS 8901 the sustainable event management standard so events standards standards are are coming into more and more areas and of course if you've got the standard it's much easier for people to be able to tick that box and say okay than to get you to fill in pages and pages of questionnaires what standard Relates to your industry, it might be worth thinking about it. Carbon reduction, monitor, feedback, take action. It's like any other process. Staff engagement is absolutely crucial because staff engagement and behaviour change can account for 60 to 70 percent of any efficiency gains. It's no use having. A policy and procedures on their own. You have to commit your people to understand and believe in and carry them out. They need awareness, information, motivation, training, suggestion schemes and award schemes. You need environmental champions and for an environmental champion to actually succeed That role has got to be part of their job description. It's got to be something that they are measured on when it comes to their annual appraisal. If it's something they do in their spare time, they will for a while. But after a few weeks, it'll get left by the wayside. But if it is part of the job description, it demonstrates the commitment of management at the top level to the whole idea of environmental responsibility throughout the whole organisation. So what are the future? The future is undoubtedly going to be controversial. There will be a lot of arguments and questions about the different measures that get put forward. And most of the changes will depend on the political will, the political will of our legislators at national and local level to get these things through. But one thing you can be absolutely sure of and that is that energy costs are going to rise and there are possibly in the medium term going to be some quite serious disruptions and serious disruptions to our electricity supply which means there will be restrictions on the electricity which pumps petrol which keeps food fresh in supermarkets which keeps the lights on in supermarkets which keeps the tills running in supermarkets which keeps the street lights working the traffic lights, the security gates The lifts, well, we lose that power for very long. We can see the cracks appearing in the social fabric. They started to appear in the tanker drivers strike in 2000 when petrol stations ran dry. Chris Hoon has an immense responsibility if he is to keep the lights burning by 2015 and beyond. I think it's undoubtable that in the future people are going to be talking more and more about carbon footprints. And the proud boast, the proud boast in the golf club, in the bar, at the Chamber of Commerce and wherever business people meet, the proud boast will be, mine's smaller than yours. I hope that was interesting and it provoked a few thoughts. It is going to be an interesting future. My name's Anthony Day, Cyber Associates. With strategic partners, I can help you in a number of ways. The CRC, the Carbon Reduction Commitment, which relates to those organisations spending more than half a million pounds of electricity, is a very hot topic at the moment. Registration by the 30th of September. But after that, there's a lot to do to make sure that your organisation has the best position on the performance league table, that it doesn't waste money on buying its carbon allowances, and that it's geared up for Phase 2, for which it has to register next year. So we can help you with that. Also, as far as CRC is concerned, there are things called the Early Action Metric. You can get uh, special bonuses if you have AMRs, and I can explain what they are. If you have certain standards, we can help you with that. Other strategic partners work on employee engagement a very successful programme of training which can be implemented in your company. And if you want to look at the issues in the longer term, I'm happy to lead a workshop on scenario planning where we look at the future and not at how we, your business can survive, but rather at what sort of business you will have to have in 2050 or 2030 or even in 2020 sort of business that you will have to have in order to be staying in business and staying in profit the sustainability imperative thank you for listening I will be publishing another one of these uh, probably on the CRC very shortly you can find details at my website www.cyber-associates.com I publish blogs from time to time and I'm always delighted to take your calls This is Anthony Day. Thanks for listening.